Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. with Bradley J. Kramer. Thank you again. We're going to discuss now your, the second book you've written about studying uh, the Book of Mormon and its relationship to Jewish studies. This one is called Gathered in One, How the Book of Mormon Counters Anti-Semitism in the New Testament. What inspired you to write this book? Okay, well, well, as we spoke before a little bit, um, I figured out, I saw plainly that the Book of Mormon was written to Jews, and so I decided to say, what does it say about the principal uh, issues that Jews have with Christianity? Uh, Christian history, Christian scripture, the New Testament, and uh, Christ himself. And this comes out of that first effort to, what what are there issues with the New Testament and maybe what the Book of Mormon says about that? By the way, this, this original pro, uh, project was just massive. It was over 400 pages with nine-point type, and several, and it just was unreadable because uh, it was just so big. Plus, You had a lot to say uh, lot, about the lot, topic. Every one of these had three chapters, but it also came across wrong. I've been in these discussions. I have great love and respect for my uh, Jewish friends, and it came across a little bit like a missionary tract. If you just read the Book of Mormon, then you'll become Christian. And that is not how I, I, I feel about that. I, don't, I, I have a tremendous respect for this tradition. And mostly what I did in my attendance at these classes was learn from my Jewish friends, learn a lot about not only approaching the scriptures and studying them, but Certainly, I learned a great deal about the Sabbath, about making it a joy. And I think I became a lot more comfortable with not knowing things, of things, of putting them on the shelf and thinking about them for years and, and ruminating on and not having this somehow challenge my faith nor undermine my intellectual integrity with the books. So uh, I'm tremendously in depth with these, these people and wanted to recast this in a, in a better way that showed really what I learned from them. Oh, and you were successful. Oh, thank you. I don't think it reads like a missionary tract at all. Some may be surprised to learn that many modern Jews do not only disbelieve the message of the New Testament, but also believe it to be anti-Semitic. The first time I heard that it was anti-Semitic, which was new to me, was when I was listening to uh, Amy Jill Levine, discuss her work on the New Testament. Can you give us some context to why the New Testament would have an anti-Judaic message? Well, in some ways, I'm kind of uh, surprised at the, at, the, at the pushback to some of these things, because especially as I've gotten to know my Jewish friends and be and aware of their sensitivities, I see lots of anti-Semitic elements within the, within the uh, New Testament. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say the book itself was anti-Semitic all the way through, but it certainly has some very powerful and very numerous anti-Semitic elements. And it's not just Jews by any means. In the second chapter, kind of describe how many committed Christian ministers and scholars have seen these things and an attempt to deal with them in various ways by not mentioning certain passages, by not emphasizing them in sermons, 
by changing some words, that sort of thing. So they're really trying to, 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 to deal with this by, by, by writing commentaries, which put it in a larger historical context. So it's not simply just Jews, people who don't believe in the New Testament, but there are many people who uh, love and revere the New Testament who see these elements. Why might this be a, a Latter-day Saint problem? Um, I think one, I had come up with like three reasons. I think one of, it, it, one of the reasons is that we really don't know much about modern Jews. We may be thinking of them as New Testament Jews, and a, a great deal has changed uh, since that time. Um, we talked about rabbinic Judaism, how that's really a post-Jesus era development. You mentioned Amy Jill Levine, and, and one, of the, one of the techniques she uses, I mean, she teaches in a divinity school at Vanderbilt, so she's teaching Christian ministers um, about New Testament, but also teaching them how to deal with Jewish issues. And she asks them simply to imagine that she's in their, she's in their congregation or she's in their class where they're teaching the New Testament. And if you have a Jew present, how would you change this sort of thing? And I think that's, uh, if, if we had more knowledge and awareness of, of Jews and their sensibilities, we'd be more, more sensitive and more knowledgeable. Uh, also, we, we talk about the quotation approach to the New Testament. We tend to study the New Testament in snippets and lose the context except when we're just reading it through. And oftentimes the context is in an anti-Semitic or even an anti-Jewish setting. This is something the Pharisees came up with and Jesus refutes them, certainly with Sabbath laws. If you read it in, in altogether, it comes across as more or less uh, criticizing uh, Jews, whether they be Pharisees or Jews or in general or Sadducees. Even like the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, there's a part in here. I mean, this is, this is basically intensifying some parts of the Ten Commandments. But it comes down to basically saying that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. That puts a context on the whole issue and almost makes it into kind of a thesis statement as to what the, what the New Testament was about. But we wouldn't really study or read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in that way. I think there, uh, the other also reason is that these anti-Semitic elements are often, you have a few glaring ones, but maybe a lot of them are very small and not noticeable and subtle, and they kind of accumulate like almost a tide that washes us in a certain direction, and it's hard to kind of pin them down, and it's hard to also realize how they're affecting us in our point of view, and they've been affecting our culture forever. That's why Pharisee, by definition, usually means some some person who's hypocritical or rule-bound and not seeing the spirit of things. And you have a really interesting discussion on Pharisees, Sadducees, and that whole relationship and how how Christ is not uniformly condemning that sect of the Judaic faith. I loved that. Can you give us some context to why the New Testament would have an anti-Judaic message? Why would they write that in there? As these committed Christian scholars and ministers point out, uh, it's, it's typical to see the, the New Testament as written at least a generation after Jesus. So the idea is that Jesus had his teachings, they went to the apostles, these are basically illiterate people, they, they'd remember the teachings, they'd spread the teachings, teach them to other people, they would then remember it. So there's this oral tradition that's building, but as the apostles are dying off and the, and they, and the um, and the temple is is threatened uh, that they're writing these things down later on. 
most uh, scholars think that uh, Mark, for instance, would be written at the at the tail end of the of the 60s, getting into the early 70s. That uh, Luke and Matthew would be built upon Mark, and they would be written in the mid 80s, and then John was much later in the 90s or mid 90s. And at that time, Christianity is changing. It's originally basically a very Jewish sect, very much involved with, with, with the Jews and their synagogue, but it's gradually acquiring more and more Gentile members. There's a division occurring because this is a different kind of uh, Messiah that the mainstream Jews were expecting. So there's a, there's a rift developing. And as a small group, and maybe even, even persecutions and, and, and oppressions, and so there's a small group that's more or less trying to set up its identity as opposed to another, another group, the greater Jewish group. So it's almost a way of saying, how are we different, but also bolstering the, uh, the, the confidence and faith in these people not to go back, uh, not to go to Judaism, not to be threatened by Judaism, to, to maintain the faith. So it's in, written in a very different context where you have these beautiful sayings that are kind of put in a context where there's conflict between Jews and these, these new Christians. How would the current political situation have affected it as well? There had been Jewish revolts prior to the writing of these Gospels. They were still under Roman rule. And how would the Christians have wanted to maybe gain favor with the Romans by how they wrote their Gospels? Sure, they're in, in basically a, a <laughs> quite a pickle. For one thing, Jews in general and those associated with them are becoming kind of a uh, pariah. They're kind of outcasts because they revolted against uh, against Rome in 66 and their temple and city was destroyed in 70. Uh, the fact that they would do that and, and, and uh, somehow reject the Roman peace and the Roman law where they were considered basically um, traitors in some at least ingrateful. Are considered ungrateful to the to the Roman Empire, not part of the Roman Empire. So they would want to somehow distance themselves from Jews. But also, you have this problem where Jesus was basically executed by a Roman governor. Does that somehow condemn the the Roman Empire? And you still have to work within this this empire. You want to be able to to move about and uh, send your missionaries in different places and and not be uh, oppressed. And even in the early, well, there's certainly Nero uh, early on, but there's others, there's spotty persecutions against Christians that are, that are popping up. And because they don't worship or pay homage to the, the Roman gods, especially the, the, the Roman emperors, there's a sense that they're not patriotic. They're potential traitors. They're not loyal to the empire. And, they, and that would be an issue that the, I think the gospel writers would be sensitive to, to try to not position the Christians, uh, Christian religion as, as somehow uh, outside or condemning of the Roman Empire in general. The New Testament starts with the Gospel of Matthew, and probably many modern-day Jewish people can't get past that book because right at the get-go, they're ingratiating themselves to the Roman Empire. How, do, how does the Gospel of Matthew try to gain favor with the Romans. Okay, again, there's, there's this problem of the responsibility for, for Jesus' crucifixion. And it, it, it was a Roman form of execution. It's a, it's, a, it's a crucifixion. This is something reserved for rebels, basically, uh, insurrectionists. So how do you get around that? Well, it seems in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it, it seems to shift the blame for this. You have 
Pilate, who um, by all accounts from Josephus and Roman things was a very efficient and very cruel governor. Uh, he wasn't waffling or philosophic or weak by any means. He's known for being insensitive to Jewish sensibilities by bringing images into the temple. He's known for putting down rebellions, even crowd rebellions, violently with his soldiers. And yet in the Gospel of Matthew, he seems almost weak. His wife has a vision to stay away from this, this man. He feels that there's nothing wrong with, uh, with, with Jesus. He shouldn't be crucified. And yet he has to give in to the will of the people. There's, there's seemingly something that, that's really shifting the blame from the, uh, the governor. He, he's more or less forced into this by the Jewish mob, uh, the crowd, the multitude, as it says in Matthew. It's just a, a very different depiction of, of Pilate than you get from other sources. Biblical scholar Bart Ehrman has written about this quite a bit, too. Pontius Pilate was not known for having mercy for the people. In fact, he was eventually released, wasn't he? I guess called back, his, called back to Rome because yes, there was, was, was an incident with the, with the Samaritans, I believe. Yeah, because he, he was so down. cruel. Right. Yeah. And and even the whole the whole incident where they set up this 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 scene where uh, it's 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 um, it's Passover, so you can now I will re- release to you a criminal of your choice. Various people have pointed out that there's no evidence of any governor ever doing something like that, and they point out that it just doesn't make any sense. Would you release the most dangerous uh, criminal, uh, the one who has the most ability to rock your empire? Uh, to the public just because they cried out his name. No uh, no Roman governor in his right mind would do such a thing. So, or even that he would have the kindness to let Joseph of Arimathea take the body of Christ and bury him so he wouldn't have to break the Sabbath. Like He, he wouldn't have even cared. Yeah. But they're setting up Pontius Pilate as, uh, as this really uh, benevolent kind of type right. of governor, which is not historical reality. Right. And, I, and maybe that's a, a little bit of a criticism of the Roman Empire, uh, the, the, the governors there, that they, that they might be weak, but it's a lot better than saying he purposely and, and maybe even callously uh, crucified the, 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 the person that the Christians reverence. And so that puts them in a, in a rebellious uh, situation. So we're talking about the Gospel of Matthew and how it could be perceived as particularly damaging and offensive to those of the Jewish faith or even of Jewish ancestry. What other examples do we find in that Gospel? Well, within that same incident, I mean, and, 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 and somehow alleviating the, the Roman governor of any, any responsibility for Jesus' death, they place it securely on the head of, of the Jews. It's a, it's a multitude who's in front of him, and they do get some sort of goading from the, um, the, the priests and the leaders in the area, but they, they seem to cry out, not only crucify him on their own, but uh, because of that, but they seem to crucify him. Uh, they ask for him to be crucified again. Seemingly, this is really coming from their heart, not, not because they're, they're forced into it. And that, 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 that cry that's called the, oftentimes called the blood cry, that they're clamoring for Jesus' blood to be upon themselves and their children, that's been the source of the Christ killer, a charge against Jews for centuries and has been on the lips of I don't know how many persecutors and murderers of, of the Jews that these were Christ killers and therefore deserve to die and have no rights. Uh, as several Jewish scholars have pointed out, this has been responsible for oceans of Jewish blood, just that simple charge. 
and it, I mean, again, they're not accepting responsibility for them just for themselves, those who are in the courtyard, but for their children. This is this is a curse that goes on for generations throughout time. That, and even in Middle Ages and other areas, there are also rumors that that Jews, even then, were were so much. Uh, uh, Christ killing was so much in their blood that they would sneak in and stab the host, uh, the, the the emblem that, uh, that they would eat in their sacraments for, for you know, they just anything to do with Christ they were just inherently uh, feeling murderous towards. Uh, so that's that's been an incredibly damaging phrase, especially because that's more was more or less before Vatican II repeated in Catholic services when they talk about Good Friday services as well as in Passion Plays. And in the Middle Ages, right around Easter, that's the time when people would be so um, riled up about their faith of Christ that they would be confused with hatred of Jews and they would go out and persecute them and burn their homes and, and murder them and that sort of thing because of that, because of that cry that was re- reenacted for them in their services. There is this misconception among well-meaning Christians, and I grew up with it. Well-meaning people taught me this, that Christ was sent to live among the Jews because they were the only people who would kill Jesus. Modern-day scholars want to reinforce the point that the Jews actually didn't kill him. The Romans killed Christ, and Christ came to the Jewish people because they were the covenant people. That's why he came there. So let's talk about this term supersessionism. What does it mean? And why do you think Latter-day Saints may be prone to misunderstanding the place of Jews as covenant people? Well, supersessionism is basically a fancy word for replacement. And it's the idea that the Jews have disobeyed God for so long and in fact were involved in the in the killing of Christ that they have been uh, cast out of God's covenant that they're no longer God's covenant people they no longer are um, welcome to God's grace and they've been replaced by Christian Gentiles that the Christian Gentiles are now the new Israel they are now the covenant people and the uh, the Jews have been cast out and maybe even that what happened to them is an example to the rest of the world what happens when you reject Jesus that sort of thing it also is connected to the idea of the law of Moses. It's it's fulfilled, but there's kind of a sense that this was a, a superficial law that really doesn't make it anyway. It doesn't do a, a good job of promoting spirituality, and so fortunately, that has been replaced by now the the higher law, the the uh, the, the better, the new covenant of of Jesus. So that's basically supersessionism. As far as Latter Day Saints go, we're a bit double minded sometimes when it comes to Jews. We we identify with them because they've been persecuted by traditional Christianity as we have. And possibly, and, and there's so many places in the Book of Mormon where it calls them mine ancient covenant people, my, my, my covenant people. And it even talks about how Gentiles will be numbered among Israel as if we're adopted in, that we have inherited a certain uh, fellow feeling, I believe, with Jews. But under, on the other hand, because of we've come from traditionally over time from Protestant backgrounds um, where this is taught, I think we also have a sense that, that they, have been, they have been cast out, that they've, they're, again, they're superficial, they're murderous, they're hypocritical, and they don't uh, deserve this uh, connection with, with God. It's interesting to me that in Mormon history, I mean, Joseph Smith certainly had a, a wonderful friendship and admiration with Joshua Seishas, who was his 
is a, is a Hebrew teacher in Kirtland. And then later on during the Brigham Young period, Brigham Young gave the various uh, Jews who came to Salt Lake City land for a cemetery and let them use church buildings for their high holidays uh, ce- uh, celebrations. So there's, all, there's, there's, it's kind of a mix. There's, there's respect, there's a kinship, but there's also mixed with some other, uh, other feelings and ideas that um, in a sense we've really inherited from other people. You show us how the Book of Mormon subtly but resolutely counters and corrects anti-Judaic rhetoric in the New Testament. Can you give us some examples? Sure. And one of the things I, I didn't mention earlier is that there are a lot of subtle um, anti-Semitic elements in the in the New New Testament, and they pretty much resolve into four categories: there's state anti-Judaic anti-Semitic statements anti-Semitic portrayals, anti-Semitic settings, and anti-Semitic kind of uh, structuring devices. And these things kind of combine, again, they're very subtle, but all of them together kind of wash you towards an anti-Semitic point of view. The Book of Mormon counters these things when when you add it into the canon of Scripture, with almost a reverse motion, it's kind of like a tsunami going the the other way of similar sorts of things. Again, of pro-Jewish statements, pro-Jewish uh, portrayals, pro-Jewish settings, and pro-Jewish structuring devices. For statements, there are some that are quite bold, especially when you get into Second Nephi twenty nine five. That, and I thought of this recently with the, with the Pittsburgh shootings. It says, "O ye Gentiles, have you remembered the Jews, mine ancient covenant people?" Again, a assertion that they remain the covenant people. Nay, but you have cursed them and have hated them and have not sought to recover them. But behold, I will return these things upon your own heads, for I, the Lord, have not forgotten my people. And then later on, Jesus, and this comes, this comes from the Lord, God. And then in, in 3 Nephi 29.8, Jesus himself says, Yea, ye need no longer hiss, nor spurn, nor make game of the Jews, nor any of the remnant of the house of Israel, For behold, the Lord remembereth his covenant unto them, and he will do unto them according to that which he hath sworn. These are very strong statements. And given the subtlety of the New Testament, it's really hard to kind of resolve this. If if the Lord himself, if Jesus himself is saying those sorts of things, it's really hard to kind of have an anti-Semitic point of view. As far as, as portrayals go, one of the things we don't emphasize very much is that these, uh, all the Lehites, they were Jews. They came from Jerusalem. They were familiar with the regions round about. They were familiar with the manner of prophesying among, among the Jews. And even in, in 2 Nephi 30, it talks about how in the latter days it will be known that they are descendants of the Jews. They are, in fact, Jews. And so in the New Testament, you have a number of, of examples of Jewish hypocrisy, Jewish uh, murdering, Jewish uh, small-mindedness. And it gives the kind of impression that they're all that way. But you have a number of counterexamples where Lehi very validly offers Mosaic sacrifices, where Nephi certainly follows the Lord. And it's, it's kind of interesting because you, you've got the charges with the Pharisees that they're, they're murderers and they're hypocrites. Well, the Nephites, they're, they're Jews as well, have problems with hypocrisy, but not always. Sometimes they're very sincere and they can repent from hypocrisy. So it makes this, this uh, uh, 
aspect of, of uh, Pharisees in the New Testament, not an irredeemable quality. They can still change. They can still maintain their connection. And likewise with the Lamanites, their problem is being murderous, the second charge of, against the Pharisees. And, and they can repent. They can change. In fact, with the Nephi-Lehi's do so very dramatically and actually send prophets into the Nephites uh, because they're now more righteous than the Nephites. And there are other examples of, of the settings and the structuring devices as well. Thank you for sharing that. We mentioned the Law of Moses in the first part of this podcast. How does the Book of Mormon show us how the Law of Moses fits in the tide of religious history? Okay. Well, certainly there's the incident we talk about with Jesus where he says, I have fulfilled the law, but then limits it to the, the blood sacrifices. So it leaves open, and he actually asserts many of the Ten Commandments and many other, other uh, scriptures and qualities from uh, the, the Law of Moses, and even quoting Isaiah after his resurrection as well as, as, well as Malachi. But there are incidents where Lehi certainly uses, uses the Law of Moses to sacrifice as a valid way of, of giving thanks where Nephi uses the stories in the in the uh, in, in Exodus to to spur on his his uh, people for uh, greater greater faithfulness, but there also seem to be parts in the Book of Mormon where festivals such as Passover seem to be celebrated and used in a very valid way. You go to Alma thirty six, where Alma is talking to his son. Helaman, and this begins with asking them to remember the captivity of their fathers. This is the major purpose of the Passover meal, and it's also when you have this meal, you you, in the process of re- reciting the, the story of Exodus, you also liken it to yourself how you've been delivered from some sort of captivity, and that's certainly what what Alma does. There's also a modern, or at least a medieval modern and modern tradition of giving the story in different ways. And he more or less explains his deliverance from the captivity of sin to Helaman and then explains it in a different way to Orianton and Shiblon. And there are other incidents that seem to show usage of uh, mosaic festivals. We talked about how the book of Matthew from the get-go establishes this anti-Semitic rhetoric. The book of Acts ushers in the second part of the New Testament. How does it establish supersessionist ideas? The book of Acts, you may not think of this, is I think the most important book in the New Testament. It's the one that makes it into a coherent whole. You've basically got, and it's and it's connected to the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke, which was written by the same author. But you have in the Gospels basically a progression from Galilee through Samaria, through Judea, and into Jerusalem, and then, then Jesus is is crucified at that point. The book of Acts takes a journey away from Jerusalem and in the same stages. It starts out in Jerusalem, moves to Judea, moves to Samaria, and then goes to the uttermost. Uh, um, at the ends of the ends of the earth, basically, with Paul going not only to what we call now call Turkey and Greece, but also to Rome, and along with it, there seems to be a sense that the the covenant and the grace of God has moved with him. 
away from Jerusalem, away from the Jews towards the Gentiles. And then when you get into Paul's letters, which were all written to, to Gentiles, it seems like the deed has been done. The covenant is no longer part of Judaism, it's now part of Christianity. It gives it a whole narrative structure. And it does this from the, from the beginning. It orders the, the, the New Testament from within, almost like a hub with a wheel that surrounds it. The, the Book of Mormon does the same thing because it's more or less in between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it connects with both of these books, but it presents a, another chapter. In, in, the, in the New Testament, you more or less have a, a day of the, of the Jews where they're rejected, a day of the Gentiles where they ascend. And then there's another chapter where the Jews and Gentiles return together, get, get along together. There's a, there's a redemptive sort of thing for the Jews and their, re, their return to their, their land, uh, especially to God's favor um, in, in, an, in, obvious, in obvious sorts of ways. So it really restruct, restructures the whole narrative. It's not only not a narrative of the, the covenant leaving the Jews and going to the Gentiles. It's a covenant where God is still working with the Jews and still working with the Gentiles and eventually redeems them all. That's beautiful. How does the Book of Mormon attempt to repair the rift between Christians and Jews? Well, again, it refutes out of hand supersessionism, not with statements, but with its structure and by showing Jews doing wonderful things. They're not inherently always evil, always mistaken, always sinful. After reading your book, I had this aha moment. I'm like, academic... Sam Brown says the Book of Mormon defies time. You kind of have these people who are practicing what we consider meridian of time Judaism. Uh -huh. They're going to the temple, they're making sacrifices, they're living the law of Moses, but they're also Christians. So they're showing how both can coexist. And, you know, we're cheering for these Nephites who are practicing Jews. And, and it's complementary. It's not a matter of one is completely wrong and the other one is completely right. And to join Christianity, you have to renounce it. These things work together. As we've just talked about the law of Moses, I mean, we think of that as just the sacrifices. And I've known actually people who think love thy neighbor as thyself and love the Lord with all thy heart is actually a New Testament commandment. But again, it comes from Leviticus. It comes from Deuteronomy. And that's because we skip studying yeah, those books. Yeah, we, we, we did that all in 20 minutes in one gospel doctrine class, so we just zipped through it. This Torah class that I went through was Leviticus. You'd think that that was the worst book in the world to ever discuss, but it's got the holiness code. It's got these wonderful admonitions. And even we would discuss the sacrifices and what does that teach us, eternal principles about sacrifice and what does it mean and what you should be grateful for and how do you uh, make things right with your neighbor, gain their, tr not just ask their forgiveness, but regain their trust. There's so many of these eternal, eternal principles locked in those words uh, that, that seem impenetrable to us at some time. But you, again, if you knew, know more about the Law of Moses, you'll see how it contains just eternal principles that I think most Christians would, would admit are eternal. Uh, I think uh, my discussions with a friend who is a Latter-day Saint and also um, ethnically Jewish about the law of Moses, I learned that a lot of those codes where we think that they're, you just have to do this and that's it are not doing that. It's that the Jewish people wanted to do more and more and more and more. And it was, the code was a way of saying this is sufficient. 
a lot of the oral law that we talked about before that the, the rabbis were teaching and then preserving in the Talmud are explanations as to how do you live the Sabbath. Exodus is pretty spare. And, how to do, and these are people who earnestly want to do the right thing and they're debating this and thinking about it. What does it really mean? You don't work. What, what, does, really, what does work mean? And how should I honor it in that way? And in many ways, they also uh, tried to be really careful, at least officially. They talk about, in, in the Mishnah, putting a fence about the law. And many, um, well, Jacob Neusner especially talks about the Sermon on the Mount as being consistent with that approach. The, the, the Ten Commandments are not revoked. It's not, now it's okay to kill people. Now it's okay to commit adultery or whatever like that. But it's, it's you know, don't even get close to that by, being, by guarding your thoughts, guarding your actions, guarding your words, that this is really consistent with a, with a Jewish approach of honestly and sincerely wanting to do what the Lord wants them to do. One of the things I think I struggle with with this book is that there are so many things in the Book of Mormon where it validates the Jewish connection to the to the to the to the Lord, their approach to scriptures, uh, even the Jewish Jewish holidays and the Mosaic Law and that sort of thing. But it comes down to also there's still an, a very clear response that uh, Jesus is the only name in which you can be saved. Uh, that uh, you still have to accept Jesus in many ways. So does that undermine basically everything I'm saying? Uh, all these things are good and true, but in the end, they have to become Christian. And does that mean renouncing everything in, in Judaism? And this is a tremendously difficult issue. And, and Christians, tr- uh, the, the traditional Christians through their history have made this very, very complicated to Jews. It's not just a matter of accepting Jesus that we, we read about uh, in his life and as, a, as someone who's full of love. But they have tried to force Jews to accept Jesus. They've persecuted Jews. They've killed Jews. They've expelled Jews. And as a result, Christianity has become the enemy. Uh, I know Jews who can be just about anything and think about anything and accept any kind of doctrine or idea, be it Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, communism, anything, and still be Jewish. But the idea that you would now somehow embrace Christianity is different because Christian history has made Christians into the enemy. If you, if you become Christian, you're now going over to the other side, you're betraying your past. It's, and it's very difficult. And they've had, they've had you know, there are the prophecies of that the, that the Messiah, to be the Messiah, has to bring a messianic era. Jesus didn't do that, so what did they do? So it's a difficult problem as far as doctrine. It's a difficult problem emotionally and historically. So what do we do? I f- see in the Book of Mormon where it basically says, well, Jesus is the Messiah, and he'll take care of it by himself. This is not really our concern to push them into a- accepting Jesus. This is something that he, I, uh, he does by himself. I, I love the part in uh, 1 Nephi 16, verses 5 and 11 through 12, and Jesus Jesus speaking, and he says, And then will I gather them from the four corners of the earth, and then will I fulfill the covenant which the Father hath made unto all the people of the house of Israel. And then will I remember my covenant, which I have made unto my people, O house of Israel. And I will bring my gospel unto them. And I will show unto them, O house of Israel, that the Gentiles shall not have power over you. But I will remember my covenant with you, O house of Israel, and ye shall come unto the knowledge of the fullness of the gospel. I think that repetition of I, I, I is saying this is his direct responsibility. This is his issue, and he will deal with it, 
And he doesn't need intermediaries. He doesn't need missionaries or conversion plans or projects to deal with the Jews. I think reading the Book of Mormon as a whole, it's our duty to, to Jews to embrace them as brothers and sisters, to learn from them, and they'll learn from us to play and work and sing and dance and enjoy life with them without this uh, any kind of superiority feeling. That this And just have faith that Jesus is the Messiah and he will take care of his people in his own due time. I love the title of your book. Well, it comes from Second Nephi 29, and the verse there is, And it shall come to pass that my people, which are of the house of Israel, shall be gathered home unto the lands of their possessions, and my word also shall be gathered in one. And I will show unto them that fight against my word and against my people, who are of the house of Israel, that I am God, and that I covenanted with Abraham that I would remember his seed forever. So there's this sense, it comes from Scripture, of uniting the house of Israel, of gathering them, I think since gathering them with the Gentiles, certainly gathering his word in one, which I think includes the, the New Testament as well as the Book of Mormon, and how the Book of Mormon then works with the New Testament. You'll notice that all these things do not undermine the New Testament. It doesn't say you're the words are wrong. It's, it was not translated correctly from the Greek, uh, or, or it needs to be changed uh, or something. It just adds a lot of other material that basically overwhelms the anti-Semitic elements of the New Testament. It puts them in a larger context. It, it makes it say, if, they, if, if these are indeed uh, problems, if the Jews were indeed as bad as the New Testament says, which most people contest, actually, then that still doesn't mean they're kicked out of God's covenant. That still doesn't reflect on the mass of, of Jews throughout the world. One thing we didn't talk about is that in the Book of Mormon and some other places, it seems to condemn Jews, but it limits them to those who are in Jerusalem. And during the time of Jesus's ministry, most Jews lived outside of Jerusalem. Many, many, many Jews. In fact, the majority were still back in what we now think of as Iran and Iraq. They didn't move to to um, Jerusalem to, to build the temple. And if you read Paul's letters, there are all sorts of Jews scattered throughout the Mediterranean, certainly in, in the, what we now know of as Turkey, but Antioch and Alexandria, very, very few Jews were actually in Jerusalem. So by saying some of these Jews were responsible for Jesus's death uh, and crucifixion, absolves most Jews of any involvement in Jesus' death at all. Certainly, if you have uh, Lehi and his family over in the New World, they're Jews and they didn't have anything to do with it. So there's, there's things in the Book of Mormon that gets rid of that sort of problem. So I, I think the idea of gathered in one is gathering the, the scriptures, well, at least countering the, the examples of anti-Semitism within the New Testament, but this oneness is a, is a coming together that the, the Jews and Latter-day Saints and Christians in general are equally loved by God and they come together with their, own, with their own gifts, with respect and their own things to offer and they're all beloved by God. So I, I think that's part of the idea of Gathered in One. Beautiful. What are you working on now? <laughs> I... I don't know. There's still some left of that massive tome that I put together. I'd, I'd like to do something with how the Book of Mormon both supports a Christian view of Christ as well as a Jewish view of the Messiah. That's one of the big objections that Jews have against Jesus. And they more or less see the Christian view of Christ as this is 
someone who came among human beings in a, in a, in a not very notable sort of way, performed an atonement that then absolves people from sin that had its results are in the afterlife. And they see the Jewish Messiah as someone who comes in grandeur and glory, who then saves the world from its wickedness. It brings an era of peace, of uh, equality, of prosperity and righteousness in this world. And, and that's where it has its central effect. And they see these things as, as really opposed. But I think the Book of Mormon really unites these things. Jesus is both a savior from sin, as well as a deliverer of the world from, from wickedness and righteousness. And I see, think you see that especially in Fourth Nephi, where there's a 200-year period that's more or less a, a huge precursor of the Messianic era and shows us what the Messianic era, what we might call the millennium, would be right. So I'd like to do something like that. I, I have used some of that material in this book, Gathered in One, so I don't know if I have enough. I, I hate to come out with a, just a pamphlet to sit to. Uh, oh, that's funny. Follow this sort of thing. Well, we will look forward to possibly a trilogy then. Good luck. All right, thank you. And thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.